As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Right here in studio. Here in Los Angeles. Unbelievable. So great. In just a bit, we're going to talk to our old pal David Pluff, Barack Obama's legendary campaign manager about all things 2020. He will also be here in studio. What a great day here at Cricket HQ. a lot HQ. of dudes from Delaware in the studio. <laughs> First, one dude from Delaware still will not come to the studio. Now that you said it. Joe uh, Biden. Tom Carper? Talking Tom Carper? Tom Carper, yeah. Chris Coons, not welcome. Uh, <laughs> first, we've got news to talk about, lots of news to talk about, from an explosive story about a whistleblower and the president to Congress's first impeachment hearing to Trump's war on California. Before that, a few housekeeping notes. If you want to understand what the hell happened with that attack on Saudi Arabia over the weekend and the ensuing risk of war with Iran, don't miss Pod Save the World this week. Tommy and Ben also discuss the Israeli elections and whether Bibi Netanyahu's career might be over, fingers crossed. They also discuss Adam Schiff's explosive letter to the Director of National Intelligence about this whistleblower, and they're joined by Senator Chris Murphy, who's leading the fight to end our involvement in the disastrous civil war in Yemen and to prevent war with Iran. Next week, we'll be on the last leg of our 2019 tour, and there are still a few tickets left for our San Jose show on September 26th and our Portland show on September 27th, so head to crooked.com events for tickets. Our friend Adi Barkin released his interviews this week with Pete Buttigieg and Julian Castro as part of his Uncovered video series about healthcare in America. Head to crooked.com slash be a hero to watch his interviews. And don't forget to order his brand new memoir, Eyes to the Wind. Um, as some of you know, because you follow him on Twitter, Adi was in the hospital for a fairly major procedure uh, this week, earlier this week. He is out of the hospital. He is recovering. So that is good news. When he's fully recovered and goes online again, it would be great if his book was just selling like crazy. So um, please go pick up a copy of Adi's book. It is fantastic. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Finally, as you all know, Crooked Media is partnering with Stacey Abrams on Fair Fight 2020, her plan to fight voter suppression by hiring full-time voter protection teams in 20 battleground states next year. We launched on Friday night with the goal of raising $1 million. And Shaniqua, our political director, is here with an update on how much we've raised. Where are we at, Shaniqua? $475,000. $475,000. So what you can't see if you're listening is Shaniqua has a giant bottle on the table filled with jelly beans. <laughs> and she is filling it up with more jelly beans to indicate how much money we've raised. This is fucking riveting <laughs> this is this is what you call a stunt <laughs> a visual stunt a visual for an st- audio medium <laughs> <laughs> there'll be a video of this out that you'll all enjoy of shaniqua filling up a bottle with jelly beans which is, i'm i'm sure is why she went to college <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is the viral content the internet thirsts for uh, one person smiling very broadly is elijah who who's gonna make us do this, this over again came up with this idea <laughs> 
<laughs> we think it's great. I actually love the bottle. This is great. Anyway, the important point here is we've already raised $475,000. We're almost halfway there, but that's still only halfway there. We need to get to a million by November 5th, I believe. And look, this is maybe the most important thing we can do between now and 2020, aside from pick a nominee, is to make sure there are teams on the ground in these battleground states to fight voter suppression. We know this works. We have seen it work before, but this is still right now the biggest hole in the Democratic Party's strategy in 2020. And Stacey Abrams is doing everything she can to um, make sure that uh, we can fight voter suppression. So go to votesaveamerica.com slash fair fight. Donate, share, tell your friends. We need all the help we can get. Thanks, Shaniqua. Thank you. Great job. <laughs> Great job, Elijah. Great job, Jelly Beans. <laughs> okay, let's get to the news. Dan, we have to start today with the Washington Post story that broke late last night. Uh, I'm just going to read the lead on this one. The whistleblower complaint that has triggered a tense showdown between the U.S. intelligence community and Congress involves President Trump's communications with a foreign leader, which included a promise that was regarded as so troubling that it prompted an official in the U.S. intelligence community to file a formal whistleblower complaint with the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. The sourcing here is two former U.S. officials familiar with the matter. The story has been confirmed by NBC and the New York Times. NBC also confirmed the fact that the communication in question was a phone call. Uh, Dan, I'm no expert on the uh, inner workings of the intelligence community, but uh, this could've, sounds... Could have fooled me. <laughs> Just on Twitter, I am, yeah. This sounds like a big deal. How, uh, how unusual is this? What the <laughs> fuck is going on here? We don't know what the fuck is going on, but it's, you know, I think one of the reporters last night, I think Ken Delanian of NBC, I think said, we're going to need to find a new word other than unprecedented to describe this. Yeah. Because we should be very clear is that a intelligence official who by some reports worked for some period of time at the National Security Council. Right. That's true. Filed a whistleblower complaint to the Trump appointed inspector general in the intelligence community. We should, and we should tell people, I was thinking this this morning, like what an inspector general does. What what are inspector generals? Why are they in these departments? What's going on? They are the independent watchdogs. They are supposed to look, investigate malfeasance, corruption, other problems. We are we know about inspector generals because there have been a lot of inspector generals working in the Justice Department investigating the various things that went on around the Comey firing, Andrew McCabe's. That's how we hear about them. It's a little, always a little bit of a fishy situation because they're appointed by the president and mm-hmm. then investigate that president's department. And Trump has not been known to appoint people with- Straight shooters. Straight shooters, respected (laughs) on either side. And so the fact that this Trump-appointed inspector general read this complaint, deemed it to be, and these are legal terms, urgent and credible, Mm -hmm. which means by law they are required to immediately send it to the congressional committees of oversight so that Congress can be aware of it and look into it. That has not happened. And um, by determining that it's credible and urgent, that is also that's a legal determination. That means you have to have the whistleblower has to have witnessed something that either breaks the law, involves serious abuse of power, or endangers uh, national security in some way. So it's not just like I heard Trump say something on the phone with a foreign leader and it made me uncomfortable because I disagree with his policy position. It couldn't be that. And this person would know, and the inspector general would also know, that um, Donald Trump and any president has very wide latitude 
to declassify classified information whenever the president would like to make decisions, negotiate with foreign leaders in private on his own. Like the president has a lot of latitude when it comes to talking to foreign leaders, negotiating national security, declassifying intelligence. So the fact that the inspector general and the whistleblower would know all this and still find this complaint urgent and credible tells you might be something pretty big. Yeah, it, in fact, it likely is. On its face, it is something very significant. It has to be to reach this level. It's important to also understand that the Trump administration is essentially in violation of the law by refusing to send this to Congress. So it is something that the whistleblower thought was so alarming. The inspector general found met this incredibly high bar of urgent, urgent and credible. And the Trump administration, the acting director of national intelligence, is so worried about the impact it'll have on Trump that they are keeping this whistleblower complaint from Congress in violation of the law. Which is making Congress, Adam Schiff and the House Intelligence Committee and and other leaders in Congress very, very angry, as they should be. The other thing to note here is that before the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, chose to keep the substance of the complaint from Congress... He consulted, wait for it, people at the Department of Justice. And as we know, Attorney General Bill Barr has basically been, his role has been covering up for Trump um, and not acting as an independent attorney general like the attorney general should since he's been appointed. So that sort of raises a bunch of red flags that DOJ got involved and uh, and told them to withhold it from Congress. I mean, this whole thing is very concerning. We don't know enough yet. The acting director of national intelligence was was actually was it the whistleblower who was in Congress today? Uh, no, it was the IG. It was the Inspector the, General, it, right? The Inspector General, excuse me, I'm sure Michael Atkinson. Michael Atkinson was in front of in close session with the Intelligence Committee and refused to, uh, at least as of the recording of this podcast, convey the substance of the complaint to Congress so, in violation of the law. Like that is the most important point. Yeah, this is not. You don't. The, the Director of National Intelligence doesn't get to decide that a whistleblower complaint that is deemed urgent and credible can be withheld from Congress. That's not in the law. It's actually, in fact, it's a violation of the law right now. So that's that's where we are yet again. Someone is breaking the law to cover up the breaking of the law of someone higher up on the food chain. Of course, Donald Trump has tweeted about this uh, this morning. Uh, quote, another fake news story out there. It never ends. Virtually any time I speak on the phone to a foreign leader, I understand that there may be p- many people listening from various U.S. agencies, not to mention those from the other country itself. No problem. Knowing all of this, is anybody dumb enough to believe that I would say something inappropriate with a foreign leader while on such a potentially heavily populated call? Yes, I am that dumb. (laughs) I am dumb enough to believe that. It's a pretty telling tweet since Trump never argues, I don't commit the crimes. No. He just argues, I'm better at committing the crimes than you think I am. He's offended that we think he's bad at committing crimes, not that he commits crimes. It's, uh, yeah. So without engaging in... Completely wild speculation. That's what Brian's for. Which we- <laughs> you can check out Brian's Twitter feed. Look, he may be correct, in which case I'll say, see, I always knew Brian was right. Um, what do we know so far? We know it involved a phone call with a foreign leader. Mm-hmm. We're aware of a handful of phone calls that happened in the general period around when this complaint was filed. So it was filed in early August, and uh, on July 31st, the president had a phone call with one Vladimir Putin. Yes. And what is there? 
There's also you can talk to the the Dutch foreign leader. So I'm sure he was promising all kinds of things to it's him. It's almost certainly going to be the Dutch foreign leader. <laughs> <laughs> or he traded Eric for like a pallet of wooden shoes or something. <laughs> But what a bust that would be. <laughs> Around the Putin call, there was a lot of suspicion. Our friend, former Obama administration ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall, was struck by this call because the Trump administration described it as cooperation on fighting the wildfires in Russia. In Siberia. in Siberia. That's what they talked about. Donald Trump offering his assistance to help with the Siberian wildfires. This was while California was burning, by the way. And he was just like, no, no, I want to concentrate on Siberia's wildfires with my friend Vladimir Putin. And the Russians described it as measures that can improve bilateral relations, which right. often means sanctions, which was McFall's interpretation. That's the same interpretation our friends Tommy and Ben had. I do. I did believe at the time it was possible that Trump called Putin just because he saw there was wildfires. It's sort of this is like a dated reference for when people used actual phones, but it's sort of like being in middle school and calling the person you have the crush on to find the biology homework. <laughs> hey, uh, just I just wanted to talk about the the fires, <laughs> the fires. That's right. While I, I have to talk you about the fires, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely uh, reminds me of uh, this meeting was about adoptions. A little bit. But who knows? We don't know. We don't know. We will hopefully find out soon. I think one reason why the sanctions thing is relevant is, like, you talked about how presidents have this broad authority from derived from Article 2 of the Constitution to conduct foreign policy in what they deem to be the best interest of the United States. Congress does have the power to limit that, to very specifically limit it. And Russian sanctions were in way early on the Trump administration where Congress passed the law because they did not trust Trump to act in America's best interests on Russia, so they limited his power. The best example of how a president can overstep their bounds historically is Iran-Contra, where in the 80s, the Reagan administration believed they wanted to help the Contras overthrow the government in Nicaragua. Congress did not want them to do that. They passed a law called the Boland Amendment to say that no funds could be spent to help the Contras. Reagan administration decided they didn't like that. They sold weapons to Iran and then gave that money to the Contras, which led to a huge, massive scandal and could have in could have put a lot of people in jail if they hadn't been pardoned. Right. And so this is like there are parallels. We don't know what this is, but there are parallels between the Boland Amendment in Nicaragua and the admit the sanctions law and Russia in this situation. Not to say that Trump has a point because of course he never really does, but you do wonder like on these calls with foreign leaders there are a bunch of people listening. And so I kind of wonder what would so alarm a U.S. intelligence official who worked for for a time in the National Security Council, but not potentially alarm everyone else who heard the phone call on both sides. I mean, potentially potentially the answer is they're all just a bunch of lackeys who didn't think it was a big problem. Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) But the fact that then Putin and his goons also kept it secret is sort of curious. Well, Putin and his goons, if it was Putin, and we do not know that. Yeah, that's right. We don't know. If it was, they hinted at something in their readout without the concerns that the U.S. would have for the politics of, right. or the law of sanctions relief. But you're right. There are, now, Trump early on circumscribed the circle of people who listened to his calls directly oh, because right. of the, the transcripts were getting around and leaking because he was saying insane shit. And so it's a smaller group than for would be for an Obama call, for instance. But there would have been other people on that call. Now, worth noting, in the Brian potential conspiracy theory, area here, Bolton resigned. There are two former officials who are quoted as the sources here, which right. is very interesting. Also resigning were 
Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, and Sue Gordon, who was the deputy director who was going to take over as acting, but Trump did not trust her and so needed to push her out in order to elevate this McGuire fellow who seems to be doing exactly what Trump wants, which is rampant lawbreaking for the purposes of protecting Trump. And another person who resigned in August was um, John Huntsman, ambassador to Russia. <laughs> oh, that is an interesting point. Yeah. So it's just a lot of, I mean, again, we can, we got the red string. We could go all day. Um, By the time you listen to this, you'll probably know all the answers. Yeah. But look, at least we know that this Congress and these Democrats are going to do whatever it takes to hold this administration accountable. Right, Dan? Someone is drafting a letter right now. Segue to our next topic. <laughs> So the House Democrats haven't been uh, super successful in using their power to hold the administration accountable for its wrongdoing. On Tuesday, former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski confirmed during the House Democrats' first official impeachment hearing that he is a uh, frequent and public liar. And uh, he also confirmed that the Mueller report was correct in stating that Trump asked Lewandowski to help him obstruct justice by threatening the attorney general to stop investigating the president. But Lewandowski also turned the hearing into a circus by refusing to answer even the most basic questions and generally being a huge asshole to Democrats on the committee. Uh, How much of the hearing did you watch and what were your initial impressions? I watched none of the hearing in real time. Same. I did not. I lived my life and I'm happy about it. Sometimes you roll the dice and you say, maybe other things will happen. We won't have to discuss this. And I rolled the dice and lost because <laughs> here we are. Snake eyes. I did. What I did was I like what I I went to Aaron Rupar from Vox mm. and I just he he is a journalist who uses video to capture what's happening in real time at Trump events. But he also did the Lewandowski hearing. So he's sort of he's like the red zone of the Trump era. And so I watched all the highlights from that. Uh, so I feel prepared for this conversation. Uh, so what were your what are your initial impressions of the hearing? Like, what do you I mean? Because so I was watching I was not watching the hearing. I was watching the coverage of the hearing on, on Twitter, Twitter as yes. it was going. And so the first however many hours was what a circus, what a disaster. You got a lot of reporters both sides in this, like, oh, it's a it's a partisan circus and this is a something this is why people hate Washington. Both parties are crazy, blah blah blah. So I'm like, oh fuck. And then suddenly at the end it got a little bit better once they had an actual lawyer questioning uh Corey Lewandowski instead of people just who just wish they played lawyers on TV, which are politicians. <laughs> I think there are there are probably three takeaways and we can maybe We'll probably talk about each of these individually. Um, one, there is Corey Lewandowski's performance and what that says about modern conservatism. Yeah, we should, I think it's important. We should start there. The second is the ways in which the hearing did not go well for Democrats is directly tied to a larger conversation about the impeachment purgatory in which they are currently living. Mm-hmm. And then the third part is if we were in an actual legal proceeding, the information in that hearing was incredibly damning to an obstruction of justice charge against Trump. Yeah. And so let's start with the first one. Yeah, let's start with Corey. Corey Lewandowski is an absurd figure. He's like a, he's not even a JV player. He's a freshman team Republican operative who just happened to be the only guy who would go work for Trump. He didn't even get Trump elected. He got fired mm-hmm. for being bad at his job and abusing, physically abusing a reporter Yep, and just generally terrible human being. But his performance here today, I think, is about more than just Corey Lewandowski being a terrible human being. I think it sort of speaks to the assholification of Republicans, yeah. which is the best way to succeed in Republican politics right now, either as an influence peddler in Washington or a candidate out in the country, is get the support of Trump. And the best way to get the support of Trump is to act 
like as big an asshole to as many people as possible. And we Donald Trump, who theoretically has a job like he there are tasks that come with the presidency. There are at least meetings at which you were supposed to attend. He tweeted out. He thanked Corey for his opening statement. He tweeted out the video of Corey's statement. And so he Corey got what he wanted, which is it was a campaign launch. Yeah, he did not treat it as, uh, you know, a hearing where he was under oath to talk about uh, potential crimes committed by the president. He treated it as his campaign launch for uh, running for Senate in New Hampshire. Uh, we know this because, you know, aside from the fact that he acted like a huge asshole and said all kinds of ridiculous bullshit, he asked for a break halfway through the hearing and then went outside and tweeted a website that was potentially his campaign Senate website. So the whole thing was about trying to and then he figured he would defend Donald Trump and be loyal because the way to for a Republican to win in 2019 is to get the blessing of their mob leader, Donald Trump. I mean, it, it right. Re- it <laughs> I mean, that's really, what this is. It really did look like a TV mob trial with a witness who is essentially agreeing to serve time for the boss yelling at the prosecutors and the jury. Like it, 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 like in that, that is what goes for loyalty is pleading the fifth for Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the memorable line from Corey Lewandowski that he said towards the end is, uh, "I have no obligation to be honest with the media because they're just as dishonest as anyone else." So, one would think that um, for someone who is contemplating running for the U.S. Senate, admitting in public that they lie all the time, like he just did, would be a campaign-ending move. Not in today's Republican Party. No, it, it's, for, a, for it's Corey, a net positive. For Corey Lewandowski, the only thing he needed out of this hearing is for Donald Trump to shower praise on him. Donald Trump, who once fired him, so that wasn't necessarily uh, a done deal. But he wanted Donald Trump to shower praise on him so he can go to people in New Hampshire, Republicans in New Hampshire, and say, doesn't matter if I lie, doesn't matter if I don't have the experience, doesn't matter if I'm a fucking buffoon. Uh, all you need to know about me is I got the Donald Trump seal of approval stamped on me. That's it. That's all you need to know. Vote for me. And it might work. And it might work. And in the work. primary. In the primary, yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be a little different in the general. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. 
when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So what, what a value actually came out of the hearing for Democrats who are looking to conduct these impeachment hearings? I think one of the goals of Nadler at all was to Nadler has made the point, and I think he is 100 percent correct, that obstructing the Mueller investigation is an impeachable offense. Yeah. But also obstructing Congress's oversight into the president is also an impeachable offense. We know this because it was one of the articles of impeachment filed against Richard Nixon's. And this was a demonstration of the effort of the Trump administration to obstruct Congress's constitutional obligation to do checks and balances. And we have Corey Lewandowski refused to answer questions because the White House had told him not to. He was asserting privilege. Corey Lewandowski has never worked in the federal government. He is just a outside advisor to Trump. There is no such thing as executive yeah. privilege when it comes to someone who's never worked in the White House. No, it People is. People should just know that. You, you can't spend. There's no such thing. It's made up. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> and he was operating under the explicit and public instructions of the White House to do this, which is the White House basically putting up a sign that says impeach me on the front of the White House. And so that part of it was important. The other important part that we cannot forget that gets lost in all of the internal Democratic debate about impeachment is Corey Lewandowski was forced to tell Congress, as he did Mueller, that Donald Trump asked his political henchmen to pressure the attorney general into ending a criminal investigation into the president, his campaign and his family. That is significant. That happened. The other thing that would take from that is Corey Lewandowski is loyal to Donald Trump like no one else. He would swim through a sewer with an open mouth for Donald Trump, and he refused to do this. It was an order so crazily illegal that he did not do it, which but that does not that is not, does not exculpate Trump. Asking Corey Lewandowski to do that is a crime. And we discussed a major crime from the president in Congress on live TV. Yet you wouldn't know that it was. It's like buried in the uh, like tenth paragraph of some of the stories. Look, you got to you have to get through nine to ten paragraphs of optics before you can get to the facts. That is a rule of modern journalism. I will say, when I woke up the day after the hearing, uh, some media outlets handled this right. Like the top of playbook talked about what we actually got out of the hearing of value, which I thought was great. I thought the New York Times did it well too. Um, you know, some other outlets didn't do as well. You know who you are. People. You know who you are. That talked all about the fucking optics before you talked about the fact that the president's political henchmen confirmed the special counsel's belief that the president obstructed justice. There you go. That's the hearing. Uh, he also, by the way, uh, we found out that he that Corey Lewandowski demanded immunity before he would talk to Bob Mueller. So maybe Corey Lewandowski, uh, you know, had might be done something wrong. Himself. But he demanded we found out that he so he admitted that he lied to the media, demanded immunity from the special counsel. Uh, we found out that Trump asked him to obstruct justice and that Trump asked him to obstruct Congress's investigation by refusing to answer questions. Seems significant. But look, we we should talk about the Democrats and sort of like how this hearing went. Right. Because um, while we learned all these things from Corey Lewandowski, we learned them at the end when um, Barry Burke, a lawyer for the Democratic staff, questioned uh, Corey Lewandowski. Before that, it was a bit of a shit show. So what does this sort of say about the Democratic strategy around impeachment? Well, let's deal with the lawyer versus member questioning mm-hmm. first. A lawyer should always do it, right? A staff lawyer, or if you're in a situation where you have someone 
who was on the committee as a member who is a trained litigator and interrogator like Kamala Harris on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah. And it's just the five minute time limit where you have to waste two of your minutes in preamble is never enough time to actually get to the truth of anything, because you as soon as you get going, they hand it to some Republican who's just going to throw gorilla dust in the air. And then we start all over again. And so having an attorney do it, whether it's a staff attorney or one person over a sustained period of time is a much better approach. That is never going to happen. It just, it just will not Why? because members of Congress look in the mirror and they see Daniel Caffey. Like that's just, that is just how it is. And we had this like conversation. A, we had it after Bill Barr. We had it after Michael Cohen. We had it after Mark Zuckerberg. It's like Mueller, get it's, a subject matter expert to ask questions. Like there's a couple people in Congress who are good at this. Adam Schiff is very good at it, right? He was great in the Mueller hearing. Nadler is good at it. Nadler is good at it. Freshman members, AOC, very good at it. A lot of you just aren't so great. And this isn't like a fucking participation trophy exercise where like everyone just needs to get there a couple minutes to feel good about themselves. Like is is that more important than making sure these hearings come off well and achieve their goal of bringing public opinion around to why the, why the president needs impeaching? Or even just finding the truth. Forget public opinion. Like, right. Yeah. Just actually, like, it, right, like right, even right. like so you take AOC, who is great at this, but it's still five minutes and then you hand it off. And so a better approach is start with a Democrat, one Democrat doing it for some extended period of time. And then the Republican staff attorney or member can do it for the same amount of time. Yeah. But the public will be better informed by that for sure. And I, I, I will say, you know, and this gives me pot. We should talk about this. It gives me pause about sort of the broader democratic strategy or any strategy around impeachment hearings is the Republican strategy here is very simple and it tracks with Trump's overall strategy, I think, in the election in 2020 and during his presidency, which is like when they can make things seem like a fucking circus, like everyone's yelling, like we're all focused on like small minutia of, you know, who's insulting who they win. Right. Like they know how to play the media. Republicans know that if they scream and insult and yell at people, then the media won't report that as Republicans are screaming and yelling and insulting people and turning into circus. The media will report it as both sides are at fault. And partly they do that because they know they're going to get a rise out of the Democrats on the committee as well. And the Democrats will return the insults. Right. And so they can lure Democrats into the vortex of bullshit so that everyone's yelling at each other. This is going to be their strategy through impeachment. This is going to be Donald Trump's strategy in the 2020 election. It's how he won. It's how he won in 2016. Let's focus on small bullshit controversies and let's forget the big things at stake here. And so my question is, do the House Democrats have the capacity to focus on the big urgent stakes and the truth and not get drawn into the bullshit they got drawn into during the first couple hours of the Lewandowski hearing? No. And that's not I don't it's not even an indictment of the Democrats individually or collectively. Right. It is the way the system works advantages the Republicans. Yeah. It is the the way punditry works, the way media works is we live in a both sides world and Republic it is to Republican advantage to pull this into a contest of the lesser of two evils. Yeah. And that is going to happen. Now it's the whole frame of the election. I think it can theoretically like in a presidential race, you can change that dynamic. Like in a one on one person against Trump. It takes a lot of a lot of discipline, a lot of message discipline, but you can do it, it. And you can and you do not depend as a presidential candidate on the filter to be the primary 
source of communication. Yeah, exactly. To, to the American people, you can, you can run ads, you speak directly, you have that ability. It's much harder in Congress. So it's, it's just it's very challenging. But you give yourself the best advantage to do that is if you have a clear plan and a strategy that is obvious to the voters, to the media, and you tell them where you are going, right? Like yeah. this is really important that in these confusing situations like these, you have to, like we always yell about people quote unquote signaling the play and say what you're going to doing. In a situation like this, you have to lay out a timeline, a process, and a goal and say, we're going to do this first. Our next step is this and then this. And you you sort of tell them the story in advance so they can follow along. Yeah, and not just say it once. Say it, oh, You have to hit people in the media over the head with this kind of stuff over and over and over because there's so much going on out there and you just have to keep repeating the message. Now, in, in fairness, one of the big problems, one of the reasons that Democrats can't do this, can't have a very clear strategy that they communicate about impeachment is because they're divided on impeachment. Right. So... Um, Politico published a story Wednesday night about the tensions between Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler and Nancy Pelosi, who, quote, criticized the panel's handling of impeachment in harsh terms, complaining committee aides have advanced the push for ousting President Donald Trump far beyond where the House Democratic Caucus stands. Democrats simply don't have the votes on the floor to impeach Trump, Pelosi said, and you can feel free to leak this. Ugh. The story came out on the heels of Nadler telling WNYC, quote, personally, I think the president ought to be impeached um, and that he believes the House should act on impeachment, even if the Senate will not remove the president because Congress has to, quote, vindicate the Constitution. Meanwhile, Pelosi then said of Corey Lewandowski that she, quote, would have held him in contempt right then and there, which many people are interpreting as a swipe at Nadler. Dan, what the fuck is going on here? What, what, I don't know. Like, what I is it? I mean, no, I and I feel bad for Nadler because <laughs> Nadler is doing what he should be doing, doing what the Constitution requires, doing what is not only morally right but what we have argued is politically astute, which is pushing forward on a number of hearings that will result in hopefully an impeachment. Uh, you know, bringing articles of impeachment against the President of the United States. What is Nancy Pelosi doing? Here's what I think Nancy Pelosi is trying to do which is she has made the political assessment and it is informed by her members. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is, yeah. We, it, it is important. We say Nancy Pelosi is shorthand here. And you can also make the argument that if Nancy Pelosi really wants something, she gets it and she could convince all these more moderate members or, or swing district members to go along with impeachment. And I think there's a good argument for that and she could. But this is not just Nancy Pelosi. This is a lot of the people that we all elected in 2018. We campaigned for them. We yep. gave to them. And it is they they've made the political assessment that Trump committed impeachable offenses. But because there will be no actual accountability for that other than a vote in the House. And because public opinion is so-so on impeachment. Therefore, it is overly politically risky to do it. Because I think it would be different if you, there was a belief the Senate could. If you could actually remove Trump, I think people would have a different approach to this. But it is interpreted by some, I don't agree with this, interpreted by some, to be a show vote. And are you willing to put your race on the line for a show vote? Now, I would argue you're putting your race on the line, period. You are in a contested... Yeah, It's not like your Republican opponent's just going to drop off the ballot if they're NRC. You can't hide from the news. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, can't hide, you can't hide from politics. It's happening. But so, like, they are incredibly divided on this. And, like, we often make fun of the press for their heat-seeking 
missile-like look for Dems in disarray memes. Yeah. We they, we are actually in disarray here. Like that is a fact. You have <laughs> Dems are in disarray. You have Jerry Nadler and Nancy Pelosi, two leaders in Congress, the two most important people for this conversation about impeachment. Completely on different pages. And this Speaker of the House feeling like the Judiciary Committee has pulled her in a place her caucus does not want to go. And you have the Judiciary Committee and a lot of the members feeling that the Speaker is keeping them from where they want to go. And they're telling everyone about it. And what's what's bizarre here is, you know, in the political story says this, Nancy Pelosi has signed off on every move that Jerry Nadler has made. She signed off on the court documents that state that this is an impeachment inquiry. So and then, you know, Pramila Jayapal um, said this in the story, too. Uh, she doesn't want to say the word impeachment, but she signed off on all the documents, which, again, like if Nancy Pelosi just wanted to go out and say, look, I know that he should be impeached. I think it's bad politics. I'm never going to be for it. I'm against this. It's just a bad idea. And that's that. I would seriously disagree with her, but I might respect that more and might respect it as a strategy more than what she's trying to do right now, which is have it both ways, which is, you know, OK, we're going to let. Jerry Nadler go forward a little bit, but then I'm going to pull him back and then I'm going to take swipes at him in caucus meetings. And then I'm going to say things like you should have held Corey Lewandowski in contempt when I'm against impeachment. Like, what are you doing? I feel like the strategy of trying to have it both ways and straddle this is the worst of all worlds. One of the most important lessons that I learned from our time in the White House was most of the time, no decision is worse than a bad decision. Yes. And we are living in the no decision world, particularly in a situation where this is a 51-49 proposition. And reasonable people can be on either side of that, whether everyone agrees it's the right thing to do. What people are disagreeing about is the politics of it. And it is a fair political question to ask, since the only thing the House will be doing is putting a scarlet eye on Trump. Right. We are not going to remove him from office. So- it is fair to debate the politics of that, and people are coming down either sides of it. We think it's the the right politics, although the last few weeks have caused me some concern yeah. on that. Me too. No, I mean, I, I look, the reason that we think it's good politics, the reason we are for impeachment, aside from that it's the morally right thing to do and that he deserves to be impeached, is that we've argued that the Democrats can um, put on essentially a show and and hold public trials and public hearings where there's enough media attention on that that uh, people and you know American people who are not yet on board watch these hearings and say yeah this guy does deserve to be impeached yeah he's committed a lot of crimes yeah he's really corrupt and maybe if I'm on the fence or maybe if I'm not gonna, you know I, I do need to come out and vote against him and make sure that the news is filled with stories about Donald Trump's corruption and his wrongdoing so that the news is not filled with all kinds of stories about the Democrats and the Democratic nominee. That's that that's our calculation. But that depends on the Democrats running a good impeachment hearing and running a tight ship and not falling into their traps. And I'm not sure they can do it. Man, it's everything to date has been concerning. I just want to say one more point about Nancy Pelosi. because sure. I just want to, I think we should be fair to her mm-hmm. in this. And I think people can make like we disagree with what has happened today. We disagree with her position on impeachment. And people have every right to be to do that. I think it, the criticism of Nancy Pelosi has to be rooted, though, in the reality of her position, which is she could not tomorrow say we are going to impeach Trump and yeah. just do it. Right. The Speaker of the House is more is not a dictator. 
they really like this idea that everyone's like Frank Underwood or Lyndon Johnson and like twisting arms make. That's not how Congress works. At most, she is a shepherd. She is moving a bunch of sheep, trying to get them to go in, in the right direction. And they are not doing that now. She could say, so I don't think she could say, You're, we're definitely impeaching and I'm going to make sure that happens. She could say we're definitely not impeaching. Yeah. That was the thing she could say. Yeah. And so that is that, that is the choice that I think lies before her and her Congress is, is at some point, do you just pull the Band-Aid off? And the sooner you do that, either the sooner you say, now there's going to send something to the floor and we're going to deal with it, or we're not going to do it, then at least there is strategic clarity and we can figure out what we're doing. But right now, it is a swamp of terribleness. And it is, it is concerning. No one is... No one is benefiting by what's happening right now. Not the people who want to do impeachment, not the people who don't want impeachment. It is actually helping Trump because it is distracting from – it is like the impeachment – Because we're talking about the impeachment process and we're not talking about the impeachable offenses. Yeah. That's, like that, that's what it comes down that to. That was the cloud over yesterday's hearing or Monday's – whatever day that hearing It's was. all process. That's what we're talking about because that's all that's happening and we cannot get enough media coverage of the substance. So that's where we did start today. Um, that's not – that's not what's the, the divisions within the Democratic Party are what's driving the narrative, which is unfortunate to say the least. Oh, OK, let's move on. President Trump's been in California this week where he announced that he will use the power of the federal government to prevent our state from setting higher emission standards for our cars to go further on a gallon of gas and not contribute as much to human extinction. This past summer. Four of the major auto companies made a deal with California to meet the state's fuel economy standard uh, instead of just satisfying the federal rules, which are lower. But even though some of the biggest automakers themselves support California's position, Trump said that he's getting rid of the waiver that allows California to do this. California officials have already announced plans to sue once the administration has officially taken the action. Uh, So much for the state's rights party, huh? So much for that. Big, scary federal government coming in to uh, take over, to trample on your rights. Donald Trump wants to make it more expensive for you to drive your car. That's it. That's it. Auto companies, the people who are profiting from all this bullshit, are saying, yeah, we'll make cars that go further on a gallon of gas. We will agree to do that here in California, more so than other cars uh, that are made across the country. And yet, and yet, Donald Trump doesn't want that to happen. Now, he's saying... Oh, this is about cheaper cars, but that is bullshit. Yeah, this is about oil company profits. What is uh? So why is Trump's justification so bullshit here? What is he? <laughs> well, because it, it is cheaper for consumers in the long run to have more fuel efficient cars. Right. Yeah. Like whatever you whatever you save in the short. Like and also we're in this world now where all of these automakers, because of the market, are realizing that the market demands here what the few, what people want is cars that consume less gasoline because they can pay less for gas <laughs> right it's not just it's it's chiefly about making sure that you know one of the biggest emitters of carbon which are cars uh, and transportation sector in general um you know emit less carbon of course that's going to help save the planet but it's also going to save people in the long run if you have to fill up less and Donald Trump's just coming in here. And, and by the way, and what happens in California affects the rest of the country because California is such a big market, right? That now, if Donald Trump has his way, you know, there'll be more gas closers. That's basically what he's fighting for right yeah. now. And oil companies will be richer. Like that, that's what it is. So that's, that's one attack that Trump has uh, launched on California. Uh, he's also become obsessed with 
Homelessness in cities like L.A. and San Francisco. Last week, the Washington Post broke the story that the administration is actively considering plans to crack down on homeless camps here in California and possibly move people into facilities run by the federal government. Federal officials have apparently looked at a historic building over by LAX as a potential site for such a shelter. When traveling on Air Force One on his way out here, Trump said that, quote, we can't let Los Angeles, San Francisco and numerous other cities destroy themselves by allowing what's happening and lamented that homelessness issues are ruining, quote, the prestige of these cities. He also said that he's personally heard complaints from people like foreign real estate investors who are deeply concerned about how tents and homeless people are affecting their property values. So why is Trump obsessed with this issue? Why did he suddenly decide to uh, care about homelessness in, in our cities here in California? Because deep in his dark soul, there was a glimmer of empathy. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It is Trump. No. It is important to Trump's political narrative to tell a story of cities which are a proxy for places inhabited by liberal elites and people of color. Right. As the two hellhole. least favorite groups of people. Yes, as threatening hellholes. Right? That are encro- overrun with immigrants. That are encroaching upon they're going to they're going to hate it there so much they're going to move to your suburb or your rural town. And so it is the, like the exact thing that a 70 plus year old white guy from Queens right whose brain was pickled in the 80s thinks, right? Like the, it is a very simplistic racist view of cities yeah there's there's a um there's a political benefit here as there is with everything that donald trump does and you can see it in the electoral results even since 2016 where you know uh, american politics today uh, can be you know one way you can look at it is this deepening divide between urban areas in this country and rural areas in this country urban and suburban areas and rural and exurban areas and Donald Trump wins with grievance politics and he wins with fear and he's trying to make his America in the rural areas and exurban areas afraid of the cities and 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 angry about the cities because he wants to continue deepening that divide. So he isolates people who live in the cities as bad, whether it's people of color, whether it's immigrants, whether it's liberals, those people are bad. They are taking all of our money. They are draining our resources. They are filled with dangerous people. They are a blight on America. I am fighting the war against the cities and the liberals and the immigrants on your behalf. That is his message. He's also angry because he's unpopular in those places. So yeah, that's part of it, up. too. I mean, we should also just it is important to acknowledge that homelessness is a huge problem in the cities in which huge. we live. It is. It's a huge problem. And it's a huge problem that, um, you know, the Democrats haven't come have, up, you know, failed enough. Democrats haven't come up with a solution or at least a workable solution. There's plenty of great policies out there. Not a lot of workable solutions yet. And there for is this issue. And the reason that people are homeless is multivariable, right? There yeah. it is. It can be there are, there are regulations in California that are making it incredibly hard to, to housing costs, housing costs, changes in the economy, rent, like opioid crisis. There's a whole set of things that, that massive inequality, economic inequality. So no, people don't have the there's not a silver bullet solution. I know the silver bullet solution is not, however, the federal government rounding up the homeless people and putting them in a camp, which is what Donald Trump proposed. And we all just went, it was like in the ninth paragraph of a story. Like, we haven't even talked about it since then. It is one of the most fucking craziest things anyone's said in a long time. It's incredibly scary. It's incredibly dehumanizing. It's like fucking, you know, years and years on HBO come to life here. Um, the way that Trump, I mean, I know that the homelessness is uh, is a problem. It is a crisis. This is how Donald Trump talks about it, though. Quote, we have people living 
in our best highways, our best streets, our best entrances to buildings and pay tremendous taxes where they went to those locations because of the prestige. In many cases, they come from other countries and they move to Los Angeles or they move to San Francisco because of the prestige of the city. And all of a sudden they have tents, hundreds and hundreds of tents and people living at the entrance to their office building and they want to leave. In Donald Trump's mind, the problem is not the thousands and thousands of people who have fallen on hard times, who probably worked, um, you know, probably had homes at one point, lost their job, lost their homes, can't afford the cost of living with their families. They take the, you know, they have children, they are in and out of homeless shelters. Like, that's not the problem. The problem is that those people are a blight on the city. It is the most dehumanizing thing you could say. It is, it is scary to listen to a leader dehumanize people like he has done. Like, I think the way to think about it is Donald Trump does not care about the person who has to sleep in the street. His concern about homelessness is about the person who has to step over the person sleeping in the street. Yeah. And it's very and it's very scary, you know, Be, that like he's already, you know, he's already has this war on uh, immigrants, specifically immigrants of color. Right. Not the ones from Norway, of course. Um and, you know, now he's moving from that to homelessness, right? He's trying to sort of siphon off parts of the population that he deems either uh, dangerous or a blight on the cities or whatever. It's it's really, really bad. This is very Giuliani-era New York City-type politics. On steroids. Yeah. I would, I With would the argue. power of the federal government. With yeah. the power of the federal government and, I think, the language, too, yeah. is, is, is really amped up. What kind of, you know, what, what are Democrats doing about this? What kind of plans have Democrats had? I saw that Bernie uh, has a housing for all plan, which I think is is, is great. It's, you know, I think it's two and a half trillion dollars over 10 years. And, um, you know, he aims to end homelessness and enact a national cap uh, on rent, on rent hikes. Um, we saw, you know, Beto O'Rourke was out here this week. He, he toured Skid Row in uh, in los angeles and 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 talk to homeless people and homeless advocates so that's good but um i don't know have you seen any how do you think democrats should handle this i i think the there you're going to need a whole series of approaches right Mm -hmm. ref medicare for all to the like some element of this is mental health right medicare for all or any or some of these other universal health care plans to expand access to health care would give people more access to mental health services we have to deal with substance abuse issues bernie's plan is exactly (laughs) is exactly right that we have to make housing more affordable in this country. It is unaffordable in these cities and is pushing people out and onto the streets and elsewhere. And so it's like- Some of this is a a NIMBY problem, right? Not in my backyard, right? There's a lot of like wealthy liberals who would say that they want to care about homelessness, but when you start building affordable housing in their neighborhoods, say absolutely not. Yeah, they get the shelter somewhere else. Right. Right, so that's a huge problem too. So there are a lot of problems here, but like Donald Trump isn't serious about any of these problems. This is a political wedge issue for him. And- you know, he's seems to be obsessed with California for a very specific reason. Yeah, California <laughs> doesn't love him. Right. It's and it's liberal and it's a it's a caricature of everything that Donald Trump wants to talk about in this campaign. So he comes out here to make sure that our cars are more expensive, scapegoats homeless people, and then he spends the night in Beverly Hills raising fifteen million dollars for his campaign. From the richest people, just in case you were wondering what's going on behind the scenes while Donald Trump is engaging in his culture war, he is trying to steal as many of the uh, make himself richer, win his campaign, take as much of the nation's resources as he can for himself. Destroying the planet to own the libs. That's it. That's it. Okay. when we come back, we will be talking to Obama campaign manager David Plouffe. (laughs) 
everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. On the pod today, the host of the brand-new podcast, Campaign HQ, that drops today. And the author of the forthcoming book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, Obama campaign manager and White House senior advisor, David Pluff. Pluff, good to have you here in studio. It's so great to be here in studio. Check out the Crooked Empire. This is exciting. We haven't had you here yet. Remember that meeting in early 2007 where we all talked about our future career as podcasters? (laughs) (laughs) This is it. This is where we all landed. We can win Iowa. We can win the presidency. And we can start podcasting. Change America and then change podcasting. Better than... Being on Dancing with the Stars, I guess. Uh, it maybe is, just barely. It is an improvement. Yeah. <laughs> it is an improvement. I'm pretty proud of us that we did not talk about that today. Michael did ask if we wanted it in the outline, and we refused because we're bigger than that, right? Not really. All right, I want to talk about your podcast and your book, uh, but let's talk about 2020 first. We're almost a year out from the election. How would you assess the political environment right now heading into 2020, sort of the overall fundamentals? For the general election? Yeah, let's do the general. Well... Knowing that obviously we don't have a nominee yet, and that's a big piece of the puzzle. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so let's start there. The big things that will determine are the state of the economy. Are we at war in the Middle East? Strength of the Democratic nominee? Strength of the campaign? Trump runs. So those are the big things. And on the plus side of the ledger, if you want to get rid of the, you know, sociopath in office, uh, bad approval numbers across the board, hard reelect numbers quite low, most of the head-to-heads with some of the potential Democratic candidates. Uh, in most battleground states, not great. Um, but, you know, this time, if I remember in 11, we were given about a 20% chance to win. So a lot can change. And what concerns me is I think Trump's going to get astronomically high turnout. Yeah. So you look at Florida in 16, you know, a million more people voted there. Some went for Hillary, but Trump got about a half million more votes in Romney. You look at 04, what Bush did in Ohio. I think that's what we need to prepare for. So if you're modeling, what does it take to win Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania? You better give Trump massive turnout. And we see what he's trying to do. He's trying to drive up the third party vote. Yeah. Last time it kind of just happened. But, you know, 
infanticide. You won't be able to eat hamburgers. You won't be able to fly. You won't be able to use your car. There, there's a smart strategy behind that. So, so I'd still rather be the Democrat than him. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we also know he's going to overperform his national poll numbers in most battleground states. So we better prepare for an epic battle that's going to come down to a point or two. Now, if we really do slide into recession, then I think this could break open. But absent that, I think it's going to be super tight. Um, and I don't even know who I'm going to vote for yet, much who, who I think is the strongest candidate. I think that'll come into to clarity in January or February. But I know we need a candidate. So let's think about Wisconsin. Yeah. Who can get a 58 or 60-year-old iron worker who might have voted for Trump back and get the kids on the college campuses and the young African-American community in Milwaukee fired up. Have to do both. This isn't a base or persuasion question. It's both. In the list of states you just gave, you included Arizona and North Carolina. You did not include Ohio, Iowa, and Florida. Do you think, are, are Ohio and Iowa unlikely to be in play this time? And what, what do you think the state of Florida is? Well, my sense is the six core battlegrounds will be Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. Now, Florida, Trump's going to get massive turnout. But we just lost, you know, Gillum almost won. Great candidate, but was also under investigation. That hurt him. Mm. Turns um, out that's a, that's a problem in elections. We've problem in election. You know, I, I think Nelson wasn't the strongest candidate in that race against Scott. We won it twice narrowly. So I think Florida is going to be, and we know if you register enough voters down there and do a good job on, on turnout. So, and given that it's 29 electoral votes, so it's those six. I think whether Ohio and Iowa, Texas and Georgia are in play, um, those are going to be the tough decisions made by our nominees campaign. And it probably depends on who they are and their appeal. Trump is going to look at Minnesota closely, obviously. I th think that will be a battleground. Now, I don't think there's a scenario where Trump loses Michigan and Pennsylvania and wins Minnesota. It's not a tipping point, but he'll put pressure there. I don't know why he's going to New Mexico. Um, but, you know, he'll probably look again at Nevada uh, and New Hampshire would be my guess. So, But I think the six are those three upper Midwest states, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida. And listen, it's not crazy to have a scenario where the Democrat wins Pennsylvania and Michigan back, loses Wisconsin, but gets Arizona. Same number of electoral votes as Wisconsin. So you got to play there, I think. Um, with the caveat that obviously the nominee should be should have a message that speaks to all voters, like what, who are the groups of voters that you would be spending most time and resources talking to as the nominee? Well, let's look at Wisconsin as just an example. Look yep. at the numbers. So in 16, Hillary got, I think, 29 or 30,000 votes less than Obama in Milwaukee. Now, Trump won by 23,000. So you could say, let's just take care of the turnout thing we win. Do we really want to go into the margin of error of 7,000 votes? Right. <laughs> um, but she got 250,000 less votes in Obama in all the exurban and rural areas, 600,000 less in Ohio. So you've got to look at it. What, what are the cohorts? One, we've got to do a ton of registration. We've got a massive turnout problem. So that's all base. We've got to keep people off third parties because if Trump has to get to 50% or even 49.5% in these battlegrounds, I don't think he can do it. He's going to want to win again at 47 or 48. And then there are persuadable voters. And who are they? Well, those Trump Obama voters, as we know, do exist. Yeah. There's also people who voted for Clinton in the suburbs, particularly some women suburban voters who may be open to Trump this time, still don't like his personal behavior, but the economy is working well for them. So the, the, our campaign, our nominee will have a very good sense of that. But you've got to look at it as you've got to, you've got to get enough from each of those buckets particularly when you, I think, model out Trump's turnout, I think you need to assume it's going to be higher than you can imagine. And if it's not, great. But I think the folks in the MAGA hats are coming out, and I think they're going to come out with huge strength. And so we need to have a candidate that's able to drive registration and turnout, uh, keep 
you know, particularly young voters off third party candidates and then get enough uh, uh, turnout and persuasion. So so look at Wisconsin. What if you're not going to get 250,000 of those votes back that flip from Obama to, uh, you know, Trump, but maybe you get 50 or 100 grand. So so I think that's where the focus has to be. And we know that Trump is vulnerable with these voters on corruption, on trade and tariffs, on health care, on taxes. Um, and Do you so, think that the, the where he's vulnerable with those voters it, are the same places he's vulnerable with some of these Obama drop-off voters, third-party voters. Like, do you think basically do you think that there is a message that can sort of stitch all of these constituencies together? Yeah, what I'm not suggesting is we have different messages for different cohorts. I mean, the the, the challenge here and the necessity is a candidate who can say the same thing in a rural area and an urban area, college campus, a retirement home. Uh, and have that work. So, you know, fighting for an economy that works for everybody and in corruption, getting health care for everybody, rebuilding our alliances and and not fighting dumb wars. All of these things can work with everybody. Um, and so but but that it's one thing, the messaging. But I think you need hopefully a candidate in a campaign that's got the mixture of inspiration and organization and capitalize on that. Yeah. Do you- a lot of there's been a lot of concern as these debates have gone forward that the Democrats are moving too far left to win the exact set of voters that you're talking about in the exurbs of Wisconsin or wherever else. Do you share that concern? Well, I think most people in this country are locked into how they're going to perform. And I think that um, I'm not overly concerned about it because I think once you get to the general election, it's not just going to be what our nominee says about health care, but it's compared to the destruction Trump has brought onto the health care system. And um, so so um, but I, I do think that um, I am concerned about the health care debate because I do think that. I think that Sanders and Warren and Harris, they're all doing a good job of talking about you're still going to be able to have your doctor and we're just basically changing the way that healthcare gets administered. But I think a lot of people out there, even a lot of Democrats, probably are concerned about losing private insurance overnight. So um, I am concerned about that issue. But let's look at Trump. I mean, so you want to have a debate about health care. We're talking about how to get everybody covered, and he's doing everything he can to deny coverage, pre-existing conditions, attacking women on health care. So I, I think there's a lot of weaponry there. But whoever, listen, I don't see anybody on the stage the, last week who can't win. It's also possible any of them could lose. Like, I think we ought to just plan accordingly that this is going to be a coin flip election. Which candidates do you think are running uh, particularly smart campaigns? Honestly, for me, I won't answer that question when people start voting because that's what matters. Yeah. Did they do what they need to in Iowa and South Carolina and Super Tuesday? Then then there's no bullshit. It's just like, did they run the kind of campaign they needed? I'd say that Warren's probably the most consistent from a message standpoint. I think she's the crispest candidate. Um, you know, I'm not in Iowa these days as much as I'd like to be. Uh, but you hear that, you know, most of them are putting together pretty good organizations in Iowa. Um, now that's one state. And so I think one of the interesting things is who's able to do it in New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and begin to plan accordingly for the March states, because almost most of the country and most of the delegates are going to be awarded in March. Yeah. So you've got to be prepared, not just to do well and execute a a good organization in the early states. Um, but I think Warren's probably been the most impressive so far in just terms of like, she seems to have, I think the clearest sense of why she's running, I think she communicates it in an effective way. But she's also now, you know, there's a chance in a couple of weeks here, she's going to be the front runner. And so we'll see how she deals with those spotlights. Um, and that's the thing about this process is uh, I, I think it really won't be till middle of June, maybe even the third week of June, to begin to have some sense of how this may unfold. And part of that's how do candidates deal with this? Of June? 
Of sorry, of January. Oh, I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> Pluff drops the bomb of the brokered convention right here. <laughs> well, I did have Greg Schultz on my uh, first podcast, but Biden's campaign manager, and you know they're not assessing the odds of huge, but they're planning for a scenario. I mean, what if you have three candidates emerge into March? We may not. Maybe it'll be two, and none of them are getting you know more than forty percent of the vote. You know, you could end up with somebody. You know, maybe there'll be a clear leader in terms of pledged delegates from a plurality standpoint, maybe not majority. But I think January, you know, the, the race, we are literally like candidates are still stretching. I mean, it is so early. I mean, you look what John Kerry did, John. You were on that race. Yeah. Um, you know, we, were, we were left for dead at this point left for in dead. 2003 in September. We were kind of left for dead at this point back in 07. Y- oh, yeah, that's right. You know, so massively uh, by Jimmy Carter, like on the Democratic side, our stuff tends to break a little bit late. So so right now it looks like, well, it's got to be Biden, Sanders or Warren. There's no room for anybody else. But history suggests that there probably will be an opening for one or two of these candidates. And do you think that opening is likely to be someone from a different generation, given the fact that you have three candidates around the age of 70 who've been on the political stage for Biden and and Sanders, obviously, for decades and Warren has been a a well-known political figure for a decade. Well, I think the rest of the contenders are younger than they are. They span kind of mid-30s to, to I guess, mid-50s. But I think you're already seeing in Iowa, so I don't want to uh, talk too much about polls because, you know, I didn't conduct them. I don't know if they're right. But, you know, you see the polling even over the last week that's come out both in Iowa and nationally. You're starting to see that delta between the polls nationally and Iowa because in Iowa, it's where the campaign's happening. And so you see, you know, Mayor Pete's higher in Iowa than he is nationally. I think Harris might be a little bit higher. Um, and so- And they're both on TV now, They're right? both on TV, you know, which still matters, um, you know, in, in Iowa and everywhere. So I think that, um, um, but what's fascinating about Iowa is I, if Biden or Warren, and you could maybe argue Sanders, don't come in first in Iowa, you know, maybe they'll be able to recover, but it's a setback. But if if a Mayor Pete or a Kamala or a Beto or a Klobuchar come in third, you know, that's a massive victory. And so, so much of what happens in this primary will depend on how the chips fall. So let's say we come out of South Carolina and Biden's still doing well or at least, you know, at, at strong enough position to win. And he doesn't have like Harris or Booker in the final three, let's say. Mm-hmm. Well, he's probably going to be the candidate that's going to do best for the African-American voters. But if it's him and Warren or Sanders and a Harris or a Booker, He's, so so much of this depends on how the chips fall in terms of who the semifinalists and finalists are. Yeah. And the candidates really don't have any control over that. So I think that's an important thing to pay attention to is uh, because, again, after South Carolina, this thing's going to happen with such velocity. Now, uh, in 07 and 08, um, Hillary was obviously leading uh, Obama among African-American voters until we won Iowa, and then it changed almost overnight, and Barack Obama goes on to win South Carolina. I've seen a lot of people saying, okay, well, yeah, Biden's got this massive lead with African-American voters right now. If Elizabeth Warren wins Iowa, all bets are off. Do you think that's sort of an automatic thing that happens in every case, or was it unique to us, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, we were an African-American candidate. Right. So I think that that's where, like, if Kamala Harris were able to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire get some momentum in South Carolina, I think she's going to eat into Biden's African-American numbers. Whether like a Warren or Sanders can, uh, you know, I think it depends, first of all, on, you know, who's really strong heading into South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So if, if it really is Warren, Sanders and Biden, let's say that scenario, you know, Biden probably still should be considered the favorite both in that state and the African-American voters. But, you know, if Biden were to come in third in Iowa and come in fourth in New Hampshire is really struggling, 
you know, momentum is a powerful, powerful thing in politics and not having momentum is a powerful thing. Yeah. So, so that's where, when I had Greg on, you know, he was very clear that, you know, they're not expecting to win all the early states, but you have to do well enough uh, to keep the momentum in the balloon. I thought that was, yeah. I'd love you to unpack that a little bit because I thought that was fascinating when I was listening to Campaign HQ um, and, and Greg Schultz, who's Biden's campaign manager, is he did start talking like, okay, we may not win a couple of these early states, but the media needs to pay attention to the delegates. Could you sort of explain his argument in delegates in general for people who might not understand this? Yeah. So thank you for the plug, by the way. Subscribe uh, or Please download go. Apple or wherever you get your podcast. You guys do better than, than I do. Five campaign star reviews. Thank you, Pfeiffer. <laughs> talking. So I think that um, ultimately most people realize that the presidential election is about one number, 270 electoral votes. It's all that matters. We'd like to change it into a popular system. Not going to happen. So the only thing that matters really in a primary race is 1,990 delegates. So that's the number of pledged delegates you need. And we changed our rules. So superdelegates won't vote on the first ballot. And I believe that whoever leads the pledged delegates, the superdelegates are not going to overturn that will of right. the voters. So whoever leads is probably going to win. So I think what Greg is saying from the Biden standpoint is they think they have strength amongst African-American communities, blue-collar Democrats in every congressional district in the country, so that they lose a state, they win a state, they're going to be getting delegates. Um, and I think that the delegates are proportional, proportional by state, by CD. So there's no doubt that, you know, Biden's not going to go overnight from where he is today to 5 percent. But but if you if you start losing, particularly when front runners lose, um, if they keep losing. So if Biden were to lose Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina, no matter what organization he has, no matter what demographic he, strength he had before Iowa, he'll begin to lose it. So Biden has to do enough, I think, in the early states. Um, so, so yeah, I think from a potential standpoint, you see how they could run all the way till June and be acquiring delegates. But that's only if he looks like he could win. Right. And, and if he if he's not meeting um, sort of the standard he needs to hit in the early states. So that's really and, and they all have different standards. Again, for Mayor Peter Kamala, it's not winning Iowa. It's surprising people with a two or three finish or maybe a close fourth. Um, I think for Biden and Warren, it's probably going to be they need to win enough early. Yeah. Like in the past, like Bill Clinton famously was the one candidate who won the nomination without winning Iowa, New Hampshire. Iowa was not contested that year because Harkin was running for Iowa Senator. Tom Harkin was running for president. He was the comeback kid by coming in a surprise second in Iowa. And the national media was able to carry that narrative to give him momentum in the subsequent primaries. Do you think in our current media environment, you could still get away with that sort of with like with a, a narrative victory as opposed to an actual victory? Well, if you look at so Iowa was, you know, because of Harkin, a non-event. So really, New Hampshire was the only event. And he did come in second. So a surprise second in New Hampshire heading the rest of the calendar uh, in any scenario is not bad. Um, and then, you know, he ended up facing off really in the first part of that prime with Paul Songus, who great senator, not a great presidential candidate, strong. Uh, and then Jerry Brown. So I think in this scenario, it's harder because, um, you know, if somebody is supposed to win Iowa or come in second and doesn't do that, they're going to get pulverized. Um, not just by pundits, but by voters. And like, it's going to be, you're a stone cold loser. How can you recover from that? I mean, imagine if we had in, if, if we had lost New Hampshire in 08 in today's social media environment, it was hard enough to dig out from that. Yeah. Like, I still think we would have, but I think it would have been really, really hard. So I think it is harder. Um, and so that's why I think you need to have a campaign that says we are focused on delegates. We're focused all the way till June. But if you don't go through those first gates with enough strength, your plans are, I think, going to be more on paper than reality. 
So you got to hit the mark. Can you talk a little bit about how a campaign deals with the need, the absolute necessity to do incredibly well in Iowa, but also be prepared in the next three early states and the general? Because, like, for example, it was reported in Politico last night that Kamala Harris is putting all of her chips in Iowa. And she even told Senator Maisie Hirano that she's, quote, fucking moving to Iowa. Um, but like in a world like these campaigns are raising less money than we raised in 2008. And so how can you run a serious Iowa campaign and ensure that you have built a surfboard to catch whatever wave you have in the in the following states? Well, it's become a little bit easier than 08 in terms of fundraising, recruiting volunteers, because we obviously were an internet first campaign, but there's so many more tools to do that now. So that's your main, I think, uh, device to do that. But, you know, if so the candidate's time is going to be mostly in Iowa, but that doesn't mean you're not hiring organizers and staff in South Carolina, uh, in Nevada, certainly in New Hampshire, and in some of, at least in the caucus states in March, and have enough money to run a vote-by-mail program in California and Florida and some of the big states that come in March. So it's super complicated. So if you are strapped and basically you're not hiring staff in all those states uh, and you're really naked on March and you bet it all in Iowa, uh, and you do what you need to do in Iowa, um, you're definitely behind the eight ball. So the good thing is you 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 get you know the card that says you can move on in the race, but you probably won't be able to fully capitalize. But but you know I think for some people that's their only option. But if you're going to be the nominee, you've got to have the organization in the other three early states, and you've got to have a theory of the case in March and April, and the money. And and I would even argue in some states boots on the ground to begin organizing. And again, a lot of that can be distributed. You don't have to have, to have a huge staff, but you've got to be getting voter lists out to your supporters and asking them to call and say. You know, in Minnesota uh, and in Colorado and in Georgia, you got to be working it. I mean, that's one of the benefits we had back in 08 is we had such active, passionate volunteers. They were organizing even before we had staff on the ground. So um, it's a great question, Dan. Um, and the other thing, just the, the race, it's hard to describe the difference between the first four than the rest of the calendar. Yeah. It's in a way like almost peaceful and calm because you're like in Iowa and you're in New Hampshire. And, and then it's like, holy shit. <laughs> so, suddenly there's like a we whole bunch of states, states in a week. Yeah, right. And a, a bunch week. have early voting. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's almost like a completely different event. Um, so the Democrats' strategy around digital media communication is of uh, great concern to us here on Pod Save America. You just joined the board of Acronym, which is a digital media startup. Can you talk about why you did that, why you see this as such an urgent matter, and, and sort of the work that they're doing? Well, Acronym, led by Tara McGowan, just a great leader, is doing great work in a few ways. They did a lot of digital work in the 18 elections. Um, they have started in Virginia and intend to expand this to other states, of progressive media companies so that we're producing more localized content, um, which I think we have a huge deficit in our party. Um, but we've also decided to do what we can um, to try and raise some money and do some smart messaging work in the battleground states because the, the presidential election has started. Yeah. There's only one side on the field, it's Trump. And we need to be with voters we've talked about on this program uh, in those six battleground states communicating to them Every day we have to, to know who they are and the best way to motivate them and feed them content because the Trump campaign is doing it and they're going to intensify it. So I don't want to overstate that importance, like who our nominee is, state of the economy, all that matters more. This election, we better assume it will be decided on the margins. So things like that matter. Uh, and if Trump has nine to 10 months on his own, 
to be run messaging and get more sophisticated and about these are like these Facebook ads and mostly all. Facebook ads, some Instagram ads. Um, you know, I think you need to let the data drive that decision. Some people still primarily get information from from radio and television, but for the most part, it's digital. And and so every day, Dan's great about tweeting these out. You see these amazing stories about the trade war or the corruption uh, or how farmers are getting hurt or healthcare. We see them and we're like, well, how can anybody vote for Trump? Yeah. The voters we need to reach aren't seeing them. So we need kind of a last mile to get those to those voters in a consistent way. I almost think we need, uh, it's, you know, we want to do our part at acronym, but but all of these outside groups need to take on responsibility. Basically, you're the Democratic nominee from an advertising standpoint till we have a nominee. It can't just be episodic yeah. because the Trump campaign, we had such an advantage in 12 as an incumbent. We had time to prepare for that race, uh, know the voters in those states from a general election standpoint better than Romney as did George W. Bush, added Reagan, added Clinton. So the Trump campaign is going to be much more ready for the general election than our side is. Um, we've never seen a president this obsessed with re-election. Yeah. And it's fair to say Barack Obama had more than a passing interest in serving a second term. <laughs> uh, but as did, I'm sure, George Bush and Reagan. But this is all Trump cares about. He, yeah. You know, his, his haranguing. He's not running the country. No, it's, the, <laughs> you know, so, so they're going to be ready. And, and they're spending money now, not just to build their list and their, their volunteer and donor base, but they're spending money in battleground states. So I want us to get to the point where every week we're seeing, you know, at least several hundred thousand dollars spent in these battlegrounds and eventually more than that. Uh, so that, you know, we're basically providing what bridge we can till we have a nominee, particularly as Trump's trying to define the Democrats as, you know, again, they want to kill babies. They want to take your food away. You won't be able to travel. And we can laugh at this stuff. Yeah. There are some voters out there who will say, I'm not sure I can do that. So I may not vote for Trump, but I may vote third party. Like, this is incredibly important. I think for our listeners who may not have been as dialed into the 2012 campaign as obviously we were, for all intents and purposes, Obama won re-election in the next six months of this cycle. It was basically, we were written off for dead in August of 2011. And I think our RCP polling average was like 42. And we were at 49 by Christmas, which was our number on election day. And so because we were doing it, the Republicans were lighting themselves on fire and their outside apparatus, which was spending money against us, but just doing it in, fortunately for us, a piss poor ass backwards way. But they were investing the outside groups were investing more in defeating Obama in tw- at this point in 2011 than the outside groups are investing in defeating the Democratic outside groups are investing in defeating Trump. Yes, thus far it's kind of a barren field. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you know actually actually acronym puts out a list every week of the digital spending. I look at an email I get every yeah. week. It's the most depressing email. But you know my hope is over the next three to four months we see more and more progressive. And I the, what really matters to me is less the overall spend than what's being spent in the battleground states. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you have decided to become a podcast host and what Campaign HQ is all about? And I also want to hear a little bit about. Uh, your book, A Citizen's Guide to Defeating Donald Trump, which I believe is out in March? March. Okay, great. March 3rd. Well, first, the book. So, um, you know, probably the question I've gotten most often in my very long, unfortunately, political life is from people out in the country or in states is, what can I do? What more can I do? Mm. So I'm simply saying, first of all, from someone who's run presidential campaigns, why volunteer work is important, the difference it can make. How you registering five voters in Michigan may not seem like a lot, but if just 2,000 other people in Michigan did, did the same thing, that's like the win margin in Michigan. Yeah. So it matters. Uh, sharing content, I think a lot of us, I know I've made this mistake, we get on social media and share a lot of content about Donald Trump. 
But we need to basically be a distributed army for our nominee. Their health care plans, their tax plans, their foreign policy plans. Just get, get that, that out one. there. And so, so traveling to battleground states, uh, making a list of everybody in your life and make sure they're registered, voting early. Like Part of the message of my book is you actually need to take more responsibility than you may be comfortable with. Um, we can't assume that our nominee is going to be the savior. We can't assume the presidential campaign will do everything right and Trump will do everything wrong. What can you control? Mm. And that's different for everybody, but I, I lay out a set of ideas for, and again, it's not all the ideas, um, but you know, creating your own content. So if you've got a neighbor who voted for Trump who's voting for Obama, take your phone out, film them, put it on your social media channels. Yeah. Like just, you, you've got to like every day think through what can I do? And so I think that the ownership, I'd say the ownership we all have to take over this election is even greater than we saw in our organization in the Obama races. I, I really do. Um, podcast, li well, first of all, the question is, what can I say that you guys aren't saying? You guys kind of have a lot of <laughs> a things lot. covered. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, you, the wilderness and, and your, no. So, so for me, um, given my background as a manager, I, I just wanted to kind of go a little bit deeper on the race. Um, you know, in the primary, a lot of that's about the race for delegates and the operation you're putting together to your question, Dan, uh, to go the distance. So I'm going to talk to managers and digital directors and state directors um, so that we go a little bit deeper on the race. And then when we get to the general election, go deep in the battlegrounds. Uh, yeah. And really, so less about, you know, what was said that week um, and more about um, really looking at a pathway to victories, both in the Democratic primary and the general election. So in over the years since you left the White House, you and I have been in a lot of meetings together with political people, and you have always introduced yourself as David Plouffe, I'm retired from politics. Does this indicate a temporary unretirement from politics? <laughs> well, it's not like, you know, working in a campaign HQ, you know, 20 hours a day. But, you know, for me, I felt like, um, you know, on the podcast, I think there is a market out there of people who are following these races closely, who maybe I can bring a little bit perspective and more importantly, have conversations with guests to fill that. But my work on acronym definitely is coming out of retirement a little bit. Um, I mean, I think that, first of all, the digital, unfortunately, um, I don't want to overstate this because, you know, and you guys were a big part of, of helping this. We had a great 2018 election victory. So let's not overstate the Republican, you know, advantage on digital and messaging. But they're testing a lot more content than we are. I think they are more digital first than we are. So that's a gap. But, you know, this election uh, may be one of the most important days in American history, not just election history. We got to win. Yeah. You know, eight years of this guy versus four. So, um, again, I think for all of us who aren't running these campaigns, aren't the candidate, we got to think through what can we do? And most of that's going to be on the margins, but margins matter. Um, so, um, you know, but I also think we ought to be mindful that you don't want in politics kind of, you know, a version of space cowboys. All of us who've done this before are coming back in and saying in the good old days of like 08 or 96, how it happened. Like things are changing out things there. Things we used to say. So, right, <laughs> right. We in 08. So one of the things I'm excited about in my podcast is I'll get to, you know, I'll obviously have on people like Greg Schultz from Biden, who I know, but also some people who are, you know, weren't even around in the 08 campaign who are new to this and I'll learn from them. So so that, that sort of fresh blood, I think, is needed. Well, uh, you coming out of retirement is a very huge mark in the pro column for as we head into 2020. Uh, everyone, please go subscribe to Campaign HQ with David Pluff. It's a fantastic podcast. And can we pre can we pre-order the book yet? 
Not yet. You can pre-order the book, can on, pre-order Amazon. The book yes, on Amazon. Yes, thank you, Favreau. Oh, fantastic. We we sell books here. And, uh, that's a it's a side company. Well, I'm excited. You know, <laughs> I benefited from it. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't flushed out the entire you know tour when it comes out, but I'm going to go to all the battlegrounds and you know not just the oh, coast fantastic. and you know do some workshops and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, it, you said it's the question you get all the time when we go on the road for our shows. The number one question: What can I do? What more can I do? I'm in a battleground state. I'm in a red state. I'm in a blue state. What more can I do to help beat Trump? So I think it's a great question that you're answering in the book. Everyone go pre-order it. Uh, David Pluff, thank you for joining us. Thanks, fellas, for having me. Thanks, and uh, we will see you all uh, next week. Actually, Sunday night, we are doing a show in Las Vegas as part of the Life is Beautiful. We're opening for Post Malone. <laughs> <laughs> we are opening for Post Malone Sunday night. Um, so that show will be Monday's podcast. Um, and we'll also have an interview with Samantha Power, former UN ambassador, and our pal Samantha Power will be um, that interview on Monday's podcast. And then we'll have our, uh, and then we'll be on the road later next week. Also buy Samantha Power's book. It's also, excellent. Oh, it's fantastic. Yes. Go buy Education of an Idealist. Okay. We'll see you next week. Bye, Bye everyone. everyone. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.